Good morning. Welcome to Providence Medford Grand Rounds for September 2022. Uh, today our topic is antimicrobial stewardship and COVID-19. And we're pleased to have Dr. Denisa Majorant uh, of our Infectious Disease Department. Dr. Majorant chose a career in medicine and specifically infectious disease because she enjoys the excitement of the specialty and the global aspects of it. Some of the most challenging diagnoses are infectious disease, so this really motivates me to continuously keep myself updated on clinical knowledge, says Dr. Majorant. Uh, after earning her medical degree at Popa University of Medicine and Pharmacy in Romania, Dr. Majorant completed an internship and residency in Lincoln Medical Center in the Bronx, New York. She also completed fellowship training at University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha. Uh, welcome, Dr. Majorant. Good morning and thank you so much. Do we have the screen uh, screen shared? Yes. Perfect. So today's topic is COVID-19 and antimicrobial stewardship with updates, learned lessons, and future development. I chose this topic because antimicrobial stewardship has become a very important part of infectious diseases. And also this is what I have been doing, and I would say more intensely, during the COVID-19 and afterwards. I have also noticed a few trends and uh, the literature that I searched confirmed those. Some of the objectives would be to review the definition and purpose of the antimicrobial stewardship, outline the role, the importance of AMS, especially in today's climate and clinical practice, of course, discuss about the COVID-19 impact on the MS, which was, I would say, very significant, um, including the impact on um, the development of more resistant bacteria, review some of the learned lessons, and also um, take the positive um, in this regard and provide updates on one of the medications that we have started using more intensely and Kind of off in off label um, in order to help with early discharge in the patients. World Health Organization rang a bell by saying that antimicrobial resistance threatens the effective prevention and treatment for every type of infection. Also, the CDC indicated that 20 to 50%, so almost half of the antibiotics prescribed within the United States in uh, the acute settings are either unnecessary or inappropriate. One of the initiatives uh, that developed due to this was uh, somewhere in 2010, uh, and it was named pursuing a global commitment to develop two, uh, 10 new antibacterial drugs by 2020. As you can see here, there are a lot of committees and um, a lot of organizations involved. The plan was to develop 10 new systemic antibacterial medications by 2020. And this is in recognition of the fact that while the antimicrobial resistance has been increasing, the development of new antimicrobial has slowed down. I could tell you that COVID, of course, uh, put a strain and um, led to a lot of delays in this initiative. 
but why do we not develop more antibiotics? This is a, na a national prescription audit. It was done way before COVID, but it shows the trend. One of the first uh, most prescribed medications, and actually in the first top five and top 10, there's no antimicrobials. And in terms of how much money medication generates, their uh, same national prescription indicates that um, the antidepressants are first. So antimicrobials are nowhere near. Um, in the pre-COVID era, Tamiflu was one of the first antimicrobials followed by HIV medication. So basically not antibiotics. HIV medications because they're a chronic medication. And another good you know, seller are vaccines. Um, antibiotics are used for a limited uh, period of time, so they offer kind of a low return on investment, and it is very difficult sometimes to create a pathway for approval, especially if we're looking for uh, multiple indications, which makes it difficult for the companies to work on that. So what is the antimicrobial stewardship? Stewardship describes the careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. And the antimicrobial stewardship refers to a system-wide appro approach to guiding, promoting, and supervising the safe and judicious antimicrobial use. Of course, that it refers to selection of the antibiotics. We um, uh, state about the 3D, the dosing, um, the duration, um, of the antibiotic and as well we're um, looking at a lot of data to um, select a slower duration to um, sorry a smaller duration and to switch to PO. Practical aims basically through doing that we want to decrease the frequency of antimicrobial resistant bacteria which are actually a pretty real threat to today's world. And we want to reduce adverse effects, one of them being Clostridioides difficile infections. But other um, antibiotic related adverse events like allergy, drug reaction, increase in liver enzyme, um, acute kidney injury and uh, so forth. Um, we also want to find the optimal number of days in order to, um, you know, help uh, de-escalate the antibiotic use. And also we want to choose the smallest gun that targets that bacteria. As much as we can, we aim to help transition to oral therapy as early as possible and subsequently help with early discharge. And last but definitely not least, um, an, an AMS, um, practitioner role is to educate. Education is very important. Now, as we all know, COVID has caused a significant number of disease, mortality, morbidity, and these are just some of the numbers. And what I want to underline is, of course, whoever works in, worked or works in the healthcare, they know how important COVID-19 was and some of the changes that
and everyone knows someone that was affected by COVID-19. So what happened to antimicrobial stewardship during COVID-19? It's not a very talked about subject. It took a while for me to actually find data on this, but this is the context. And of course, we are all aware that COVID-19 paused and uh, placed an immense strain on healthcare and also brought weaknesses to the surface. Um, at least at the beginning, there was little data on the pathophysiology, on the clinical picture, on the complications. There was significant pressure on the medical staff. Whoever worked inside the hospital or outside the hospital was affected one way or another. And the change um, was the only constant thing. So everything was changing from you know rules to updates to guidelines to new discoveries to new strains. It was difficult to maintain a hand hygiene in the context of intense PPE use. Whoever worked in the hospital or even outside the hospital, they know about the daily or weekly shortages. At some point, hospitals needed double occupancy and in very severe and extreme cases, like in New York, there were two patients who were using one ventilator. There are a lot of team structure changes and there was redeployment of the antimicrobial stewardship team. And I would say that the physicians definitely, but I would say that pharmacists, they suffered the most. Um, there was a lot of um, hats that they had to wear. And I have actually found a study where they share that um, they were very much impacted by the um, COVID-19. Last but not least, and I'll show a little bit more in detail, overall there was an increase in um, antibiotic prescription and overuse. And as a result, and also associated with this, um, there were more central line associated bloodstream infections. And I mean, looking back, it's easy to say we could have done more, but the reality is that, for instance, a lot of the patients in ICU needed to be prone. So how do you take care of a line when everybody's strained and the patient is prone? We had a multi-drug uh, resistant um, organism outbreaks. It's a reality of uh, COVID-19 and definitely impacted the um, AMS. And last but not least, of course, the dilemma of to treat or not to treat, and last but definitely not least, what to treat with, especially when there's a lot of confusion in regards to this. So this is a study um, that speaks to about antibiotic prescription during uh, COVID-19 in the outpatient setting. Um, this is a study from Canada and it was done between March and December of 2020. And um, as you can see, there was actually a relative reduction in total antibiotic prescriptions. And going further and analyzing why that actually happened, it is mainly due to the fact that there are less visits associated with 
respiratory infections, um, and there were less visits in general. Now, going to the other spectrum, what happened with patients that came into the emergency or urgent care or primary care office or asked for a telehealth when they had COVID-19? So this is a study that was done from April 2020 to April 2021. It was done on Medicare patients. And as you can see, the average number of patients receiving antibiotics was about 29.6%. Is that a lot? Yes, it is a very high number. And why do I say that? As a comparison, we have um, influenza. And the, the reason being it's, you know, the most recent pandemic that we've had and where we have experience on. And looking at the data on people that um, had um, primary care visits, for instance, um, and were diagnosed with influenza, the number of prescriptions were in the low tens, so maybe like 10 to 12 percent. So yes, it is a very high number. Um, azithromycin was the preferred antibiotic, followed by doxycycline, amoxicillin, and levofloxacin. I mean, I'm glad the levofloxacin was not overprescribed, but it does matter because prior data shows that wherever there is an overprescription of a certain antibiotic, there um, is subsequent resistance of bacteria to those antibiotics um, locally or wherever it is prescribed. Now, yes, there are study limitations because this was like a chart review and the diagnosis of COVID-19 was pulled from the chart, but then nobody actually looked at the possible um, coexisting bacterial infections. I would say the number is small and, uh, you know, Medicare population does not overall reflect the general population. But I could tell you that as a comparison, the, the studies and the data that was collected for influenza is mainly done on Medicare patients as well. That is just easier to collect. And the other thing that happened is that, as you can see here, the highest rates of prescriptions actually coincided with um, the COVID-19 peaks. And this is also, you know, important. I don't think that any of these studies captured the amount of pressure that the providers had, especially um, in the times where, you know, there's no data and there was not a lot of um, alternate medication to give. So I would say it's completely understandable. In the inpatient side, the initial da data that I've seen comes from China, of course, because they had the um, patients, the earliest patients with uh, COVID-19. The studies are quite heterogeneous, but up to 80% of the patients hospitalized with COVID-19 would uh, receive antibiotic therapy. And these are subsequent studies. Um, these are outside United States. Um, these 
actually indicate the fact that there is no match between the actual overlapping bacterial infection. So the antibiotic uh, prescribing would significantly surpass the proven um, overlapping infections. And um, you can see the trend is quite similar in multiple countries. But what happened in United States? So this is a study that shows the inpatient data on antibiotic prescriptions during COVID-19. And it goes across uh, multiple hospitals and it shows that over uh, three quarters of the patients that were diagnosed with COVID-19 received at least um, one antibiotic um, day during the, their stay. Um, the uh, study went a little bit deeper and analyzed uh, what type of antibiotics were used. And in terms of antimicrobial stewardship, what is a little bit concerning is the fact that the antibiotics that the providers would reach for were pretty broad spectrum. So they didn't go for penicillin or like a first generation cephalosporins. Um, they would go for ceftriaxone, cefepime. Um, and that also reflects the fact that most antibiotics um, and the most increase was secondary to the use for respiratory infections. There was not a lot of vancomycin or piperacillin tazobactam, and luckily there was not a lot of uh, levofloxacin use. Do we have supporting data in terms of antibiotic use? Um, not much. We have the recovery trial, which of course looked um, at the um, use of corticosteroids, but also looked at multiple other medications um, in moderate to severe um, COVID-19 patients that were hospitalized. And the study indicated that there is no advantage in using azithromycin in terms of clinical benefit, no early discharge, no decrease in uh, mortality and morbidity. Principal trial was an outpatient study um, that was done just about in not exact same time, but in the same time frame. Uh, it referred to the community patients and it analyzed azithromycin and doxycycline amongst other medications. And of course, um, again, um, neither of the antibiotics um, actually helped. And um, how about postmortem uh, findings? Um, this is a presentation that um, um, is referring to multiple studies um, that gathered a total of uh, 621 patients that possibly died from bacterial superinfections in COVID-19, at least as per chart. Um, and you see that proven infection is very low, proven infection rate. Um, again, there is limitations and you can see that um, almost a quarter of the patients, uh, they couldn't actually say much um, whether the, the organism um, that was identified before may have caused the death or not, if it was there, if it was um, actually um, causing histopathologic changes or not. And, at the end of the study, um, only 16 uh, patients from the over 600 patients had bacterial infections assigned as a cause of death, which is a very, very low number. Again, um, 
all the studies that I have presented and that I'm going to present, I want to, you know, talk about the study limitations. A lot of the data is heterogeneous. First off, we don't use the same antibiotics. We don't have the same um, guidelines. There were a lot of changes. The time frame differs. Um, there's variable reporting, and I, I would say that outside the U.S., there's huge differences in reporting compared to the U.S. Um, each and everybody sends a different set of like culture data um, if they can. Um, there's a lot of var variability in between what hospitals can afford and what not, and there's of course different approaches to therapy. And I would also be really careful about the fact that most of them are retrospective studies. Um, I would say that um, antimicrobial stewardship's role increased um, during COVID-19. Um, and that was, you know, fantastic. I think we have learned a lot, but it did come with a lot of challenges. I mean, WHO itself recognized the need for MS programs during COVID-19 and actually recommended for programs to be ins installed where they're not and or to be continued. And that has to do with the fact that a lot of the MS programs uh, struggled. Now, um, apart from the daily job of an AMS physician um, or a pharmacist, um, a lot of us had to do prospective audit, um, like reviewing of the COVID-19 focused medication to make sure that um, they are in queue with uh, the guidelines and also review the appropriateness of uh, treatment plans, especially when secondary bacterial fungal infections um, would appear. And um, I would say this work intensified after the introduction of like tocilizumab and baricitinib when we have had a, I would say, a higher number of um, associated um, overlapping bacterial and fungal infections. <clears throat> um, also, the role of AMS would be to modify anti-infective therapy based on local, local sensitivity and culture data. And I would say that during COVID-19, that has been even more challenging. Um, in terms of uh, pre-authorization, I think that AMS had had a paramount role in restricting inadequate COVID-19 medications. And I mean, we know about those. It has been a very difficult task. And um, also during that same time, um, AMS, especially pharmacy, would manage drug shortages and offer um, alternative antimicrobials. And we have dealt with uh, not on a daily basis, but sometimes on a weekly basis. Um, AMS has continued, you know, the timeout technique in order to de-escalate um, medication for patients with uh, COVID-19 that had a negative uh, PCR and had an alternative plausible diagnosis. People would freak out. Maybe the test is not correct. Do I need to continue this? Um, I think antimicrobial stewardship was uh, very helpful. Again, quite challenging. And um, also it helps helped with de-escalation protocols for antimicrobials um, targeting the treatments for um, COVID-19. In terms of education, I would say that AMS played a critical role in educating providers on uh, local COVID-19 uh, treatments and protocols as um, uh, well as helping out in real time. And that would sometimes mean gathering a lot of data in a very short amount of time and analyzing it. And then um, 
I would say that AMS was the very link between the hospitalists and the primary care providers, as well as infection prevention, infection control, and microbiology. Um, for instance, the real-time interpretation of PCR results and then the de-escalation of isolation precaution in order to help with the PPE conservation as well as um, early identification of the COVID-19 patients. So get in touch with uh, microbiology and seeing the time frame of when a COVID test would be back. Uh, needless to say, antimicrobial stewardship was very helpful in de-escalating um, intravenous to oral um, antibiotic therapy. And then um, they always help create local COVID treatment guidelines and also disseminate them to uh, the um, local and regional providers and op optimize empirical therapy um, and then culture-based therapy. Now, a few um, concrete approaches for uh, the people that we that don't know, procalcitonin is um, in the daily um, use of antimicrobial stewardship um, physicians, procalcitonin has been discovered somewhere in the 70s and then studied in patients that were in ICU. Um, it started with children because uh, people noticed that the procalcitonin was high and they didn't know why. And um, subsequent data showed that Procol is a very good biomarker that is quite specific for bacterial infections and um, there are studies indicative of the correlation with the severity of disease, morbidity, mortality, but also um, when we trend procalcitonin, it tells us whether we did a good job in, in terms of antimicrobials. So it has been very, very useful uh, for um, AMS and for the clinicians in, um, in general. Um, and again, for people that don't know, for instance, this is a protocol that was um, implemented. I have been using it for uh, quite some time, and it speaks about the fact that um, procalcitonin has helped in de-escalating antimicrobial um, therapy in stopping antibiotics early if not needed. Now, um, I want to underline that there's not like a hundred um, um, percent, like not everybody's convinced that procalcitonin is perfect in patients with COVID-19. Um, it tends to be low on admission, but I have found a couple of studies that um, have spoken about the levels and the correlation with uh, overlapping bacterial infections. And uh, these two studies mentioned the level of one and over being a rather good indicator of an overlapping bacterial infection with COVID-19, whereas uh, numbers under 0.25 have a good predictive value in ruling out uh, bacterial infection. And um, there are places that went further and have actually created um, a guide, um, a guideline to um, uh, basically use procalcitonin in um, um, the antibiotic uh, therapy uh, during COVID-19.
The other study that I'm going to talk about it also appeared during COVID-19 and it has to do with the fact that we have been looking at uh, de-escalating and if possible at shortening duration of a bloodstream infection treatment. This is a study that was published in JAMA back in um, 2020, and it basically chose uh, three types, uh, three cohorts of patients, one with standard 14-day therapy, one with standard 7-day therapy, and then one with uh, CRP-guided therapy, where the CRP levels would um, guide the duration of treatment. Some of the positive study um, characteristics are the fact that the, uh, this was a randomized control trial and the randomization was one to one to one, which is great. And there was um, blind, the physicians were blinding, so double blinding. And then um, if we look at the population, I think it is reflective of the population that we have in the hospitals. They do have comorbidities like diabetes, um, kidney disease. Um, a lot of them, they actually have um, um, a lot of um, joint replacements. Also, in looking at the type of bacteremia and the presumed source, um, I like the fact that they touched um, like multiple on, on multiple sources, uh, including urinary, um, abdominal and pulmonary, and this is a small change because we've had a little bit of studies on, um, you know, GU-related bacteremia, but uh, this was broader. Um, in looking at the type of bacteria, this kind of reflects as well what we um, have in our hospitals. E. coli was predominant, and then Enterobacteriaceae uh, were basically dominant. And we see here a proof that having a shorter duration of therapy leads to less adverse events, and they looked at the C. diff infections, which were lower in the shorter duration therapy. Now, I would say there were limitations. What I couldn't find is the clear data on antibiotic choices, and that has to do with the fact that there's a lot of heterogeneity, so it's very hard to analyze. So I'm not sure that it can be reflected, you know, locally. Um, I had to look in the supplement and under narrow antibiotics, they place ciprofloxacin, which I don't agree with. Um, there are low rates in all categories. So, I mean, it's a good intervention, but how many interventions do you need to have to actually achieve something? Um, you have to be careful about the fact that this was an intervention only used for uncomplicated bacteremia. And from my experience, um, some of the patients that I have do not have uncomplicated um, bacteremia. And then one of the small red flags, um, basically the CRP adherence um, was low and patients were kind of lost to follow up. I mean, 23% is a big number. Also, some of the studies, for instance, like in bacteremia with pulmonary or, um, origin, you see here that 18% of the patients were better, like in the seven day, uh, sorry, had clinical failure in the uh, seven day group and 16% in the 14 day group. So, you know, not such a big difference after all. 
And um, actually, the longer duration of therapy was associated with less antibiotic resistance. So, you know, maybe it was just uh, skewing the study. Now, another practical intervention that AMS has been working on is the off-label uh, use of long-acting intravenous semisynthetic lipopeptides. To talk about these, I'm sure you are aware of these substances. They have been in on the market for, I would say, almost eight years. Um, so Dalbevancin, Televancin, and Redevancin were initially FDA approved mainly for skin soft tissue infection, and Televancin was also approved for hospital acquired pneumonia. <clears throat> In looking at these um, products and the reason for which vancomycin is attached is because they're like in the same big family uh, usage-wise, um, dalbevancin, oritavancin, and televancin have the ability to um, stay in um, our system for up to uh, 14 days. And uh, this comes in very handy in certain situations. Um, of course, it can come with um, um, their own set of complications. So some of the advantages uh, is that we can have one dose administration in uh, these patients. And I want to underline that the one dose administration mainly, re mainly refers to skin soft tissue infection. Uh, we can sometimes avoid hospital admissions and uh, shortened hospital stay. There is no need for um, drug level monitoring or a central catheter. And the data that we have available shows that the safety profile is um, similar to uh, vancomycin. But boy, is it expensive. It is very expensive. And sometimes people have what is called a delayed hypersensitivity a reaction. There is actually limited data uh, for um, oridavancin in patients with um, severe renal insufficiency, and actually um, oridavancin is not hemodialyzed. Also, oridavancin you'll see has um, some drug-drug interactions, and uh, both they can only be compatible with 5% dextrose in water, so whoever administers has to have that and like flush, um, if there is a line, flush the line. Now, why the head-to-head Dalbevancin or Redevancin comparison? I would say that these are very similar, and um, the most study that I found lately, I'm not affiliated with either of the companies. I have no financial interest in either, but I've seen that Dalbevancin has been much more used, and um, basically this is why the infusion time is uh, much shorter it is 30 minutes compared to um, three hours um, it um, does not really have major drug drug interactions uh, the dalbavancin doesn't whereas oridavancin does um, they have similar activities otherwise so um, in terms of being bactericidal, uh, both are. Now, 
Oridavancin doesn't have much data on patients with creatinine clearance under 30, and I would say that we have a significant number of patients that need uh, treatment, and they do have a creatinine clearance that is under 30. So this is mainly um, also why Dalbovancin is chosen. Um, and and I, I actually took the raw price, not the pharmacy price. Um, the price for 1500 milligrams is around 5000, not cheap, but I see that Ridavancin is almost double. So what happened and especially during COVID, we have been using Dalbavancin not only for skin soft tissue infections, but also for serious deep seated infections. We have used Dalbavancin. I have personally used Dalbavancin before for deep seated infections, but I would say that COVID was a catalyst in um, getting more studies done and getting more data and um, using it more. Especially in cases where long term IV antibiotics may be challenging. And Dalbavancin has been the most frequently um, long duration lipopeptide. This is a study that appeared during COVID-19, and it looks at um, the role of Dalbavancin um, for gram-positive infections, and um, uh, it is basically a mix of studies, and the conclusion is that the overall pre preliminary data is promising, but still heterogeneous. Now, in looking at some of the studies included, so Dalbavancin for osteomyelitis, we I chose a ra randomized control study, but this is an open label study and the randomization is seven to one. So, you know, I want to point towards that. Um, the dosage used was 1500 milligram on day one and day eight uh, versus standard of care where um, oral or intravenous antibiotics were used for four to uh, six weeks. And we see that Dalbavancin was <clears throat> non-inferior and um, the use was mostly for um, Staphylococcus aureus. Now again, I want to point out um, on the fact that it was a pretty small um, study. We do have some data on infectious endocarditis. Again, it is small. Um, promising. Why did I choose this study? First off, it's done in Seattle, Washington, so pretty close. It's done in a big center, uh, which is helpful because we always get very good data from them. You can see here that the average duration of uh, inpatient therapy was 17 days. Um, it's a good number. It's still like not a few days like in skin soft tissue infections and this has to do with the fact that patients with endocarditis are pretty complicated and many times they have other associated infections. I also wanted to point out the fact that there was a um, significant number of people dropping out like being lost to follow up and I want to say that overall, um, this has been my experience as well. It is hard, the, the patients get the first dose, 
but then it is hard for them to um, come for the second dose for multiple reasons. And this study actually talks about the importance of having a very robust multidisciplinary team and approach to this because, uh, you know, antibiotics are not a panacea and nursing psychiatrist addiction me medicine, early initiation of, of therapy for that addiction, uh, adequate pain management, they're at least equally important um, in this regard. Um, Providence has gathered um, some data and I have um, just a, a little bit on our local data and I wanted to bring it to you. We have used 63 doses since 2019 for 43 patients, so some of them were repeat doses and the I would say one of the most important things here is to see that actually and and, and this is I would say infectious disease driven because over 90% of the medications was prescribed by ID um, the um, med medication 43% um, was used for deep-seated infection like infections like osteomyelitis or joint infection or septic arthritis whereas skin soft tissue infection uh, numbers and percentages um, were actually smaller and these i'm i was able to follow up on some of the patients that um, came for the outpatient doses so I had access to their um, medical record numbers and I looked a little bit at the indications and I also underlined the fact that um, it, uh, IV drug use was um, quite uh, frequent in these patients and I only chose active proven IV drug use during the admission. There were other patients who had very, very recent history of, um, of drug use. I think that um, in the future, these long-acting antimicrobials will play a very important role. Um, for now, we only have data in um, antibiotics for um, such antibiotics for gram-positive bacteria, but I hear that we may um, have um, an antifungal that is in phase um, three. Um, and it has about the same um, half-life. So overall, I think that the future is a promising. Um, before I um, draw the conclusions, I wanted to just briefly include a few slides on monkeypox because, you know, it's the new talk of the town. Um, it is rare. It is caused by monkeypox virus, which is an orthopox virus. It is a zoonotic disease. The Main symptoms consist of headaches. Some people can have a sore throat, fevers, lymphadenopathy, um, also skin lesions. Um, and the skin lesion appears as um, a scabs and sorry, um, a rash and sometimes blisters, which then turn into scabs. I wanted to bring like the latest Oregon data. Um, we may have a suspected um, case in uh, our county, um, but it's not like officially confirmed. This is the overall situation in COVID 
uh, sorry, in the um, um, monkeypox with a total uh, number of cases of 189. And these are the counties. Now, um, Tecovirimat can be used, but not all patients need it, only severe disease um, or patients that are um, having serious immunocompromising conditions like uncontrolled HIV, AIDS, lymphoma, other um, malignancies or immunomodulator therapy or solid organ transplant patients. This slide I've actually just placed to say that in terms of outpatient, we are willing to see uh, presumptive cases uh, if needed. We have a workflow um, in place in our clinic. Patients that are ill should uh, go through emergency so that they can um, actually uh, benefit from TPOX administration if needed. <clears throat> And of course, happy to offer um, more data for whoever is interested. In conclusion, antimicrobial stewardship has been impacted by COVID-19, and I think that we're still analyzing the long-term impact. Um, but I would say that challenges have brought opportunities and have created um, new guidelines, new interactions, I would say that the overall impact led to an increase in antimicrobial stewardship role in healthcare. Um, and I would say that there is a higher acceptance overall in antimicrobial stewardship measures. One of the reasons for main reasons for which I wanted to do this is because I believe that each and every one of the practitioners can be antimicrobial stewards and it is very important to do so. Last but definitely not least, I want to commend um, pharmacists for um, their immense, tremendous job during COVID-19. I would say that, you know, they kept me sane during a very hard time, and um, I hope to continue to collaborate with them. It has been very nice. Thank you, Dr. Majorin. Uh, very informative, and we'll we'll wait a few minutes for any questions that come in on the chat. I have one monkeypox-related question uh, for for those of us old enough to have had a, a smallpox vaccine. Do we have any protection against monkeypox? It's a very good question. Um, we don't know because it has been a while. Um, but the recommendation is to uh, get the vaccine for people at very high risk or who were exposed within two weeks of exposure. By very high risk, we actually mean patients that are in uh, direct interaction, like patients that work in labs with monkeys and whatnot, not the everyday healthcare provider. Thank you. Thank you. Also, uh, for monkeypox, uh, is the vaccine available at all locally for the high-risk patients? Um, through Oregon Health Department, it can be made available.
We'll give a couple more minutes. While we're waiting for any more questions, I'll just put in a plug for our grand rounds for October. We'll be on migraine with Dr. Carlini, update on migraine. And our current plan is to try to have an in-person and hybrid. So back to Mary Norbert. So we hope to make that work. Do you think that the, the outpatient prescriptions for the antibiotics um, for people with COVID, I mean, I was really interested in that. Um, is it just because the provider wants to do something or they think there might be a secondary infection or I, I think that's speculative, but I wonder if you had an opinion on that. It it's a very good question and may have to do with it. I think uh, the difference of COVID is that there was um, a lot of confusion and uh, people needed to reach for something. We need to prescribe something and we didn't really have, you know, antivirals, at least at the beginning. So I, I would say that at least in COVID-19, this has played a part and also the pressure. I think mm -hmm. that there was a lot of pressure to uh, prescribe and we we as doctors we feel better if we you know do something um, right. and it's completely understandable let's see here we just have a comment thank you very informative Thank you, and thank you so much for having me. Well, with there being no further questions, um, I'd like to thank you so much for your presentation today. And um, we'll see everybody next month. Thank you so much. Right. Thanks.